there, you're listening to One Person's Trash is Our Treasure. We're a podcast where we dig through and analyze media in search of hidden gems. Yeah, I'm your host, Rachel. And I'm your other host, Jen. So it's October. The month of scary movies and uh, sugar overdoses mm-hmm. and pumpkin stuff. Mm-hmm. And we're very excited that we have three episodes in October because we're going to bring you lots of spooky content. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true at all. <laughs> but, but we're, you know, we're going to have like autumn themed episodes and they're going to be real good. Yeah. So the first one, the one you're listening to at this moment, is uh, <laughs> is our discussion of the 2015 movie directed by Guillermo del Toro, Crimson Peak. Ooh. What was that? Is there a ghost in your office, Rachel? Apparently. So scary. Oh, my God. Speaking of ghosts. (laughs) So if you're familiar at all with Guillermo del Toro and his films, then you would probably be wondering why we thought that this would be a good topic to talk about, considering our podcast is about trashy media. Mm -hmm. Well, um, as it turns out... This movie is uh, very heavily influenced by the Gothic literature from the 17th and 18th centuries, which, if you know anything about literature from this time period, (laughs) they were not considered high art and, in fact, were considered trash, and they were thought to be a very corrupting force on women. So I just thought it was interesting that this genre which, you know, first of all, no longer exists. You know, these books came out before the gothic novels that you might be familiar with, such as Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Dracula, and Frankenstein, and stuff like that. These novels came before that. They, These novels that I'm referring to, the gothic literature of the 17th and 18th centuries, these are what influenced those books. And uh, not many people really know that they exist anymore. (laughs) So uh, I just thought it was kind of interesting how this genre that is no longer popular and isn't really discussed even anymore. And was looked down on at the time of its release. And was looked down on back then. uh, Was such a strong influence in a movie made by an award-winning director. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, if that sounds hopelessly boring to you, this is not the episode you should be listening to. (laughs) But if you're intrigued, then uh, stick around. Yeah. And come hang out with us at our website, onepersonstrashesourtreasure.com. Or if you have any thoughts about what we talk about today, reach out to us on Twitter at the handle optiot, that's O-P-T-I-O-T, or on Instagram at optiotpod. Yeah. Hope you enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) if you haven't seen crimson peak uh it's a movie about a girl named edith who lives in buffalo new york in the late 1800s early 1900s and she is an aspiring novelist And uh, her dad is the owner of a pretty successful business. You know, a typical, like, American dream story where he rose up from the ashes to (laughs) to become rich when, yeah. He even monologues about it at one point. Yeah, he does. (laughs) Very traditional American story. Um, So Edith is having trouble getting her novel published because... It's It's got ghosts in it. It's got ghosts in it. And uh, during this time, first of all, anything written by a woman (laughs) was considered uh, trash. But also... Nice, confident loops. (laughs) uh, Also, supernatural stories kind of had a bad reputation and weren't considered high art. Uh, The way you put it to me, I don't know, last week, whenever we were talking about this, um, was that at this time, gothic literature was thought of the way romance novels are thought of today. Exactly. The setting for this movie is interesting because it's not set in the mid-Victorian era when gothic literature kind of had its uh, renaissance, if you will. And it's not set uh, in a traditional gothic setting. It's set in the early 1900s. At that time, gothic literature was kind of um, passe. It wasn't really like a big deal anymore. So, 
her books, um, she's having a really hard time selling her book because of those reasons. And uh, then this dude shows up and mm-hmm. he is an English lord. He's a baronet. Edith has a close friend uh, named Alan who's a doctor and his mom inexplicably hates Edith. <laughs> and uh, the mom is kind of a gold digger type. So her friend's mom is like raving about the fact that he's a baronet and uh, someone asks what that is. She goes on this like diatribe, but yeah. she essentially calls them parasites. Yeah. So this guy, uh, they meet. They kind of have this attraction between them. And um, this baronet, his name is Thomas. Edith's dad is not all about the fact that Thomas is into Edith. Mm-hmm. And um, he doesn't like him for some reason. He can't put his finger on it. But Thomas has come to try and raise capital. And he's gone to several cities before to try to do it and failed. And he also fails in America. <laughs> yeah, he tries. He's trying to uh, get investors for a machine he's building that will mine clay from underneath his old English estate. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because uh, apparently it used to be a big clay mine or something. Yeah, and is not anymore. I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. It's really just an excuse to turn the snow red. Yeah. <laughs> So he, um, Edith's dad listens to his pitch and he's like, nah, nah, bro. I came up from the dirt. I <laughs> Bootstraps. Yeah. And we really like her dad. I don't know why we're kind of making fun of him. <laughs> I'm not making fun of him. Oh, I, he's I, he's very gruff. I was making fun of him. He is oh. very gruff. He, but like super likable. He's played by Jim Beaver, who I like yes. a lot. Edith ends up marrying this guy and she moves to his English estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's this old rundown place and Edith starts to realize that there are some ghosts haunting yeah. this place. So that's basically the setup. And you should watch it. <laughs> well, you had something you wanted to say first. Very f- frivolous. <laughs> <laughs> well, still. I just I just always think it's interesting when... Well, first of all, I always think it's interesting when we disagree because it doesn't always happen. It happens, but it, you know, yeah. we, we tend to agree. But also, in another movie, I feel like I would have rooted for Alan, and you would have rooted for Thomas, and I have no idea why that, like, switched. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, I tend to fall for the uh, underdog guy who, like, gets rejected. So do I, though. <laughs> well, I, well, I mean, I guess that doesn't really happen to Thomas, so I don't know... I don't know. I couldn't explain why you like Thomas, honestly. Me fucking neither. <laughs> I don't even have a thing for Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. I, like, Thomas is played by Tom, Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. He's fine, but, like, uh, take take him or leave him, yeah. personally. Yeah. It, me too. Exactly. So, I, I, I have no idea what <laughs> the fuck happened in my brain to make me immediately go, I'm into it. <laughs> God, that movie was hard to watch twice. Yeah, I want I want to know your reasoning behind that. Right now? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, that's hard to explain. Well, do we want to do our spoiler warning? Yeah. I'm going to dive into it. Yeah, just, just so you guys know, as always, <laughs> there will be spoilers. We kind of have to talk about spoily stuff. So, so at, at this point, uh, if you haven't watched the movie and you want to... Get the fuck out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so welcome all who stayed. Good. I hope you have seen the movie. Hey, everybody. So we just wanted to warn everybody that the next part of the podcast, um, we're, and the remainder, we're going to be discussing the fact that there are some mentions of non-consent in the movie. And, um, if that upsets you, then maybe skip this episode, um, particularly involving, um, incestuous relationships. So um, maybe skip this one. If that is a, is a problem, that's totally cool. Yeah. Okay. It was hard to watch again because knowing everything and kind of knowing what everyone's motives should be, you know, stuff that Thomas did, like knowing, it's so hard to explain. Well, what I find very interesting, especially upon watching it a second time, I really think Thomas is genuine. I think he genuinely loves her and I think he chooses her. Not 
because they were going to go after Alan's sister. Oh my god! What? <laughs> I didn't even realize that. Wait a second, you're right. I was gonna fucking holy shit, my fucking brain just broke. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> oh my god. Are you okay? No. <laughs> no, I'm not okay. <laughs> Oh my god! That makes everything worse. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay, it just just makes me more sad because here's, okay, here's what happened to me. See, I'm a dummy who, like, didn't fuck. Because I think that he's genuine too, but I want to think that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, to hear you say that, I did not like the feeling that it made in my heart. (laughs) Why am I like this? Um, But I had some questions because when I watched it again, in the beginning, I was so confused as to... Obviously, for the beginning of the movie, for much of the movie, you don't know what is going on and who the bad guy is. And and if if you're listening and you haven't seen Crimson Peak, um, basically, Thomas and his... Sister. Sister. Creepy fucking sister. (laughs) uh, Have been going around the world and finding vulnerable young women with large fortunes. Yeah. Uh, And Thomas has been, like, kind of seducing them into marrying him and having them sign over their money so that they can keep their... decaying english estate mm-hmm. uh, running and and he can work on his machine and yeah and so he can work on his machine but um no we don't need to talk about it never mind well <laughs> i was just gonna say but like i feel like he he's working on she doesn't care about the machine i feel like he cares about the machine because he doesn't want to keep doing this i do too and i i like i don't like the feeling in my <laughs> chest area <laughs> Uh, um, but there are a couple scenes early on which I'm sure you're not supposed to trust him, which I didn't, despite immediately going, I'm into it. Uh, I didn't, I still didn't trust him. Do you remember how, when we were watching it for the first time, do you remember how upset I was because I didn't know whether oh, or yeah, not I, I could remember. trust her? <laughs> you just kept going, why am I like this? <laughs> but there are a couple scenes early on where they're obviously trying to redirect suspicion and, like, keep you guessing and stuff. And there are a couple scenes between Thomas and his sister where, like, in one scene, she's like, you chose her. Why did you choose her? And then um, earlier on, she's she's like, are you sure she's a good choice? She's just a child, Thomas. Mm-hmm. And because um, I had walked away from the first viewing with the idea that he, hmm, how do I want to say this? He's not blameless. Like, he he's still complicit in a lot of the stuff they fucking did. Like, you know. Well, yeah. Yeah. Cool, <laughs> cool motive, still murder. Yeah. But he's also, how did I put it to you? He obviously been psychologically damaged and manipulated from the time he was a child. Yeah. So, like, he's a victim also. <laughs> yeah. Um, And so, like, it's not... An excuse, but I... Anyway, so watching it for the second time and those scenes, I I, I don't know. I, I kind of worried that I had walked away from the first viewing with a... with the wrong impression of him. Mm-hmm. And, like, maybe he was more sinister than I thought. But that totally explains it. They were gonna go after Alan's sister, and he changed it to Edith because he fell in love with her. Oh, my God, I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um... Even though I don't, like, ship him and and Edith together, I find Thomas a fascinating character, and I really do find his motives to be genuine. Yeah. I mean, he's fucked up. He he's, he still murders women, and... Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, like... Although, I mean... Okay, I hate that I... <laughs> like, I'm not defending him. <laughs> he definitely shares culpability. But she does say... She, like, she implies that he's never gotten his hands dirty. As far as, like, actually murdering people. Does she? I don't remember that. Jessica Chastain plays um, Thomas's sister. She, uh, like, later on, when, when Alan is uh, has come to take Edith away, 
she says to him, That's like, right. she hands him the knife and, and, and she's like, oh, is it finally going to be you this time or something like that? Right. You're yeah. right. Okay. Interesting. So, like, again, like, he still shares culpability for a lot of what they did. He was complicit in all of it. But, like, yes. also, he's, <laughs> I hate myself. He's obviously psychologically damaged there's that one scene between them where she's like oh you you're not gonna leave me you're not gonna leave me or whatever and he's like i i, I can't and he's like <laughs> crying and he looks at her and he's like i can't and he's like not happy about it i at the first time we watched it i thought that it was something like supernatural that he couldn't genuinely couldn't leave her but no it's just that she has manipulated and uh like raped him since he was a child let's just go there yeah seriously oh man so that was a lot of what was i mean it was hard to watch edith also genuinely fall in love with thomas and like not know what was going on like because he was lying to her and that you know and, and and she's so sweet and adorable but it's just that he a lot of his stuff was hard. Like, scenes between Thomas and Lucille were hard for me to watch. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it was, I, like, every little look he did was, like, had extra, like, oh, Jesus, this is so fucked up, you know? Yeah. So, uh, regarding Lucille and uh, Thomas's fucked up incestuous relationship Mm -hmm. uh let's apply that to gothic literature sure (laughs) um i was doing some research i was doing a lot of research on uh gothic literature and uh something that i found that i'd kind of gotten from my own experiences reading actual gothic literature but that i that i'd never put to words this way is that uh in gothic literature the family is frequently represented as harboring dangers how do you mean? Like, the family isn't considered, in general, like, the, the construct of the family. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. So, it, it's it's generally considered as harboring dangers rather than being something uh, safe and secure. Interesting. So, that definitely plays out here. Absolutely. You know? I mean, not only do we have Lucille and uh, Thomas's abusive parents, the dad's not in the picture, um... And Lucille kills their mother. With, like, she, she like, throws a hatchet into her head or something. When she was 14 years old. Yeah, exactly. Ooh. And then, um... Lucille's treatment of, of Thomas. Yeah, she, you know, from the time that she was, like, 14 and he was, like, 12 or, or so. Or, I mean, it's implied earlier. Yeah, I mean, since they were children, she's been, uh, they, she's been raping him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, um... God, it's hard to say, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and uh so what's interesting is um one of the first uh gothic novels ever written is this book called The Monk and it's fucking insane. <laughs> <laughs> like there's 800 different subplots going on. I don't understand how they connect to the main plot. But the main idea is that there's this monk guy and he's considered this like He's the most virtuous and the greatest monk who ever lived. And, um, like, there's this, like, young apprentice monk or whatever who he finds out is actually a woman and he threatens to kick her out. And she's like, no, no, don't. And, and so he doesn't. And, uh, spoiler alert, she's the devil in disguise. And she spends the rest of the book, uh, seducing him and, um, con- and corrupting him. Wow, that whole thing sounds super sexist. Yeah. <laughs> And she manipulates him into seducing a woman who he's, like, just inherently attracted to. She manipulates him into in- into seducing this woman who uh, <laughs> he ends up kidnapping and raping and immediately after finds out is his long-lost sister or some shit. Jesus. And then he kills her. Hey, um, <laughs> hey, listen, uh, gothic authors... They're all uh, dead, Jen. No, but, like, d- d- hear me out. Like, um, <laughs> if I could go back in time just for just a second and we can live in this moment back at the time when they were alive. Um, hey, are you guys okay? <laughs> I mean, they weren't okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, do you recognize some of those <laughs> 
motifs and themes. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> like the corrupting female force, the the incest, the, you know. There's even like a premature baby that like a woman has and then it dies like fuck. Okay. <laughs> um yeah, absolutely. I when you were uh telling me all about that, uh it reminded me of two tropes that I heard about when I was doing research. <laughs> okay. Cuz I did lots of research. <laughs> One of which being that like religion usually like religious characters and religious figures in gothic novels turn out to be bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought it was interesting that that didn't really have any place in Crimson Peak because it does seem like Crimson Peak does its best to check a lot of the gothic boxes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was thinking, I was when I was doing research, of course that came up for me too. And I, I found it interesting as well that we don't see a lot of that in this movie. Like there's no mention of religion anywhere i don't yeah. think they even talk about their you know because being her being american she could be protestant she could be baptist she could be anything literally the only thing that i can think of is that there was a funeral yeah that's true but there you're right there were no priests there were no nuns nothing and Mm-mm. um that is something that you generally see a lot of in uh gothic literature mm-hmm. but the other thing and as you pointed out that is very relevant is the two female archetypes that are so prevalent in gothic literature the virginal uh kind of the victim role the fragile and and vulnerable like you know and then Mm -hmm. there's like the i heard it called the predator role Ooh, yeah (laughs) (laughs) like like i don't know makes sense (laughs) yeah that's super interesting um anne radcliffe who was a uh big gothic author she wrote the romance of the forest the mysteries of udolpho um if anyone has heard of any of those uh (laughs) shout out (laughs) yeah she uh i i read that her her heroines could be divided into two categories the ones who just kind of like sat in the closet crying when shit went down and the ones who like grabbed a candle and walked around the creepy castle to like find out what's going on but Mm. at the same time the heroines in gothic literature are all the same. They're all the virginal, innocent, like, at risk of being corrupted mm-hmm. types who, you know, are being pursued by evil men who want to, like, rape them and who never give up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I-, I can't think of a single traditional gothic novel where there isn't a female character who's being relentlessly pursued by a rapist. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Thank God that didn't happen in Crimson Peak. <laughs> no, but um, in some ways, Thomas does kind of play that role. He does. He's not the rapist. He really isn't, but... No, he. I mean, he's, he isn't. He's definitely got some of the characteristics of... Um, he's so weird. Like... <laughs> And, and the heroes, like the romantic love interests in, in gothics are usually like this poor guy who turns out to be the secret heir to an enormous fortune. And <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, Thomas is technically poor. <laughs> he is technically, I wouldn't consider him the, the hero of this, of this movie. No. Not that I really think there is one. Yeah. Like she doesn't end up with anyone at the end, which is a pleasant surprise. Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, Alan probably plays the part most. I would like it to be clear that Edith is the hero, but I don't know that that's... Well, she's the heroine. No, I know, but I mean, what I mean is that, like, I think it would be interesting if she could play both parts, so to speak. Oh, that's, that is interesting. Yeah, but I don't know that the movie quite gets there, because, like, Alan does technically come to rescue her, which is, like, Edith is amazing. Like, she's great and, and super smart and you know, like, I have no issues with her characterization. Mm -hmm. I just think when I was thinking about the the different types of roles traditionally seen in gothic novels, I I think I would have liked the subversion to be that she played both roles instead of they're not, they're just not being a hero. Well, um, I present a counter argument to that. Okay. The hero generally doesn't, like, 
necessarily save the day <laughs> yeah in I gothic guess. novels um usually no one does it's just a random sequence of events that just like a, a giant helmet falls on someone and kills the villain <laughs> jesus like it's really con- convoluted it's very deus ex machina and like random <laughs> like these these novels are a mess yeah. I just want everyone to know if you decide to dive into the monk or the Italian or the mysteries of Udolfo, no, it's a mess. And you're going to be like, what the fuck is happening? Why did I just read 20 pages about this character who has no bearing on the rest of this novel? Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think, um, maybe that feeling that I had was more about like, the other thing that was mentioned in the description of, like, the victim role of the, like, the female characters who were the fragile ones and the the innocent ones and all that, um, was that, like, they were, like, a prize for the hero. And, like, that rubbed me the wrong way. So I think I just started thinking about it in terms of, like, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So one thing that's really, really big in gothic literature is this concept of the sublime. And a little bit of background uh, for anyone who doesn't understand the philosophy of the sublime. It's a concept uh, that it's above beauty. Like, it's it's more complex than just beauty. Because beauty is just, like, this shallow thing that you observe, whereas the sublime is something that you experience. So it, it's kind of this um, sensation of a balance between pleasure and terror. For example, if you see a car wreck... You're like, oh, God, you're terrified, but you can't look away, Mm -hmm. you know? So something to that effect. Um, Oftentimes it's uh, it's used with regard to nature, you know, like these terrible, dangerous mountains are so, like, awe-inspiring and, you know, they, they get your heart pumping, but at the same time, they're beautiful to look at, you know? Mm -hmm. So that concept is really prevalent in gothic literature in both the aesthetic like the the settings described are just page upon page of freaking mountains and ugh and <laughs> like like Rachel hates mountains well like i mean sometimes you're like even tolkien would be bored here you know and he's the king of just going on and on about mountains um <laughs> but like also the experience that the reader is supposed to feel is very sublime, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think what's really interesting about Crimson Peak is that it does that. Yeah, definitely. You know, I I especially, I was thinking about this today and your uh, Snapchat reactions to rewatching that movie. (laughs) Like, that's exactly what you were experiencing, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, the the role of the powerful evil woman is kind of a version of the sublime because she has that, like, duality of, like, she's beautiful but, like, she'll fuck you up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, also, with regard to women in the sublime, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft uh, had some very strong opinions about this concept. And she felt that the sublime was really relevant to women in her time period. Because for women in this in this time, uh, the sublime was triggered through a fear of confinement and suppression based on societal expectations. Hashtag too real. <laughs> and uh, I think you see a lot of that in this movie. Yeah, with definitely. Edith. And I, I mean, even with Lucille to an extent, you know, I mean. Yeah. Like, for example, not that she's the victim here. <laughs> yeah. But she's the head of this operation of, you know, manipulating women into handing over their fortunes. And in a way, like. If it weren't for her, she and Thomas would be homeless. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, and she she has to do these things in part because Thomas, you know, you know he was a child. <laughs> but he is unable to play the role that men were supposed to play mm-hmm. in this time period. And she has to work through him. And this is sort of the means she's come up with. Yeah. Once again, she's not a victim here. No. <laughs> I mean, no. Yeah, like, they're, she's she's a victim to her abusive parents, Yeah, of their course, parents but, sound awful, but she... Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, in, in a way, 
she is only doing what she's doing because she doesn't have any other option. But what I find very fascinating is uh, Anne Radcliffe, I mentioned her before as being kind of the quintessential gothic author. Uh, She introduced this discussion about the difference between terror and horror. In Anne's opinion, the feeling of dread and anxiety before something happens. Mm -hmm. So when you're watching a, a horror movie and you see the main character is walking down a dark, creepy hallway toward a noise coming from the closet the feeling you have literally happens in this movie (laughs) (laughs) exactly the feeling you have inside you is terror Mm -hmm. uh when a cat jumps out of that closet and like makes you go like oh right (laughs) that's horror (laughs) you know it's shallow it's doesn't last very long interesting so it is believed Anne Radcliffe stopped writing because she just couldn't stand what men were doing to the gothic genre because in her I'm so into this. Please keep going. (laughs) Uh, Because she felt that gothic literature was based in the concept of eliciting terror. And she felt that all these men were ruining it by making it about horror. And I find that this movie really is about the terror. Yeah. You know, I mean, the entire movie, you're like anxious about what's going to happen. And like, I have this uh, hilarious quote from Anne Radcliffe here. Terror and horror are so far opposite that the first expands the soul and awakens the faculties to a high degree of life. The other contracts, freezes, and nearly annihilates them. (laughs) She really hated jump scares, huh? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she did. Which, I mean, at the same time, though, I do too. Yeah. You know, and I think a lot of people complain about horror movies nowadays being all jump scares where it's like, yeah, that gets you, but it's not like... It's pretty empty. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't like leave you a- awake at night, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah. um, <laughs> that was the goal of gothic literature. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And what's really interesting is that uh, it's not necessarily done with uh, like the ghosts and everything. Mm-hmm. In gothic literature, like, the ghosts aren't what's terrifying. What's terrifying is the notion that these women are going to be raped by these horrible guys or that, the you know, you find out that this person fucked their sister, you know? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> or just the anticipation of what's going to happen to these, like, the anticipation that the ghosts will be evil, yeah. you know? Which we see in Crimson Peak a lot. There are ghosts haunting Thomas's estate that, toward the end of the movie, you find out are the ghosts of his mother, (laughs) who um, keeps warning Edith that she will bring his demise. But there are also ghosts of the wives that he killed, Mm -hmm. or that he and Lucille killed for their money. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Edith at first is very is terrified of them thinking that they're trying to kill her and that they want her gone. Well, they're terrifying. <laughs> well, they are ter- they are terrifying. Yeah, yeah. But they don't. They're trying to warn her. Yeah. And um in gothic literature, you see it's the exact same thing. The ghosts are rarely ever mm-hmm. <laughs> like the bad guy. Um well, the ghosts are a metaphor. So in the gothic, ghosts are pretty much always ancestors. Like, 200 years ago, the hero's great-great-great-aunt was murdered in the house, but her bones were never buried. Sure. You know? (laughs) For example, in The Monk, there's this ghost who haunts this person's house uh, called the Bloody Nun. That's what they call her. And um, there's this whole random side story between these two characters that have basically nothing to do with the monk and his secret sister. (laughs) (laughs) And, um... This dude's in love with this chick, but her aunt won't is in love with the dude. So she says that they can't get married. And then the the chick is like, we'll escape tonight. I'll dress up as the bloody nun so I can escape and no one will come near me or whatever. And it turns out so he escapes with what he thinks is her, but he actually ends up escaping with the actual bloody nun. (laughs) (laughs) Good costume. (laughs) Because um, she gets, like, 
held back and the bloody nun like leaves with the dude and she like at the end warns him about the the monk guy you know and his death it like weird random right yeah but like in crimson peak they play a much less stupid role yeah i just find it interesting that all the ghosts in this book are there specifically to warn people yeah you know when i was watching it for the second time the only other ghost in the movie other than um thomas and lucille's mother and uh a couple of thomas's uh ex-wives um (laughs) the only other ghost is the ghost of edith's mother who's the first ghost you see um and she she comes to her twice once when edith is a little girl and then another time like right before she gets together with thomas edith is super scared obviously Mm because she's horrifying she so she warns edith she says, beware of Crimson Peak, which obviously Edith has no idea what that means. Mm-hmm. And that's all she says. Mm-hmm. So Edith hears those words and it's not like she forgets them. Like later she finds out what they mean and she's freaked out. But she's more freaked out by the ghost in her house, mm-hmm. understandably. So actually that drove her to Crimson Peak. Yeah. The you're mother, right. like the mother comes to Edith the night of the party mm-hmm. and edith wasn't going to go to the party her, yeah her dad had already left and then her mother comes to her and freaks her the fuck out and then thomas shows up mm-hmm. and she he says to her like and not obviously not knowing like it's it almost seems sinister but he has no idea he's mm-hmm. just like putting the moves on her like <laughs> why would you want to stay here all alone and she like looks up the stairs like i i don't because yeah. there's, there's a ghost that's really interesting yeah i thought that was interesting as jen stated earlier Edith, aspiring novelist that she is, uh, gets very defensive about her book whenever people notice that there are ghosts in it. And she keeps saying, the the ghosts are a metaphor. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I find that interesting because, uh, you know, the ghosts in gothic novels sometimes are metaphors of just burdens of the past, you know, very cliché ghost metaphor and that's that's exactly what Edith says is the metaphor in her book the ghosts are a metaphor for the past yeah uh what i find interesting though is that in the mid-victorian era gothic literature was going through its renaissance you know it was starting to become good (laughs) like like it wasn't it wasn't like a dumpster fire like the monk or (laughs) Or the Castle of Otranto or whatever, you know. Especially American Gothic really started to arise. And that's when we get, like, Washington Irving, Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Mm. Edgar Allan Poe, Mm -hmm. Nathaniel Hawthorne. And these are all authors that most people listening have probably read something of. Or at least, like, recognize that they're of high esteem. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people have to read The Scarlet Letter in school. Mm-hmm. If not, you've probably read Telltale Heart. Right. Um, these are all examples of American Gothic. And what's really interesting, or what I, I've said interesting like 800 times. Well, it's very interesting. It is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> what's notable is that, stop, I'm just trying to change up my vocabulary. What's, I just want you to know that I'm keeping that in. <laughs> <laughs> What's notable is that I I had never personally considered Hawthorne a gothic author, but I took an entire class <laughs> on Nathaniel Hawthorne and um, Melville. Uh, I hate Melville. And, <laughs> and I can't believe I never saw that, that Hawthorne's a gothic author. But, for example, he wrote this uh, short story. (laughs) Rappuccini's daughter is about this, like, creepy alchemist guy who has a daughter who tends to all of his poisonous plants. And um, because she spent so much time... Specifically the poisonous ones? Well, that's all he had. (laughs) I was was joking. (laughs) And um, she spent so much time around them that she's become immune to the poisons, but she herself has become poisonous. Uh, There's this dude... (laughs) Um, in what way? Like, she just, her pores just, like... Emit poison. Emit poison. Jesus. So she meets, so this guy is, like, totally creeping on her from, like, over her dad's garden wall. 
very gothic. <laughs> okay. And he's creeping on her and he falls in love with her and he like sneaks over the wall and. Sure he does. Yep. And, um, he starts to die because she's poisonous. Amazing. And, yeah. And, and she's like, or he starts to die. And she's like, no, let's be together. So Why? someone, I think it's Rappuccini gives his daughter an antidote. So that that will make her no longer poisonous so that she can be with this guy. He couldn't have done that before. Well, she, he had no reason to. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. It's whatever. But like. I should stop poking holes in it. <laughs> I didn't write it. But uh, she dies from the antidote. It kills her because the poison had like become part of her. And I mean, that entire story is very gothic in nature. You have like the innocent like woman who is being creeped upon by this guy like a tragic death you have this very sublime notion of this like beautiful but poisonous woman you know Mm. so you have a lot of um hawthorne writes a lot of shit like that Hmm. (laughs) you know and a a lot of them have positive female characters and everything (sighs) the reason i was telling that whole story is because um american gothic literature has very very strong elements of guilt in it Huh. Rappuccini feels very guilty that he poisoned his daughter, you know? I mean, look at the Scarlet Letter. You know, the the heroine, she's always in the spotlight in a negative way because everyone knows she had a kid yeah. out of wedlock. Uh, well, with a guy who was not her husband. And um, the guy who knocked her up goes 10 years never admitting it, and he slowly becomes consumed by his guilt. Yeah. You know, Edgar Allan Poe, Telltale Heart, Mm -hmm. the dude hears the heart of his murdered master beating in the floorboards beneath him. And I, you see a lot of that, I think, in uh, Crimson Peak. Guilt is not necessarily a strong element of European Gothic literature, but what I find so fascinating about Crimson Peak is that it is such a weird, uh, cross between American and European Gothic. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I I think that in a lot of ways, you know, Thomas definitely feels guilty, I think. (laughs) I I do too. You know, so I I don't know. I just thought that was interesting that that was an aspect of this movie. Well, absolutely. Also, I mean, like when Lucille and Thomas's mother's ghost comes to Edith, she says, his blood will be on your hands, referring to Thomas, which, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, like, that's guilt. And, like, after everything happens, like, Edith is going to have to live with everything that happened and Mm -hmm. how it was all because they were going after her, which is not, like, it does not place any blame on her at all. But, like, you know, survivor's guilt is a thing. Very true. Something that I thought was interesting was, um, okay, Northanger Abbey. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Northanger Abbey. Yes, let's. Written by Jane Austen. Yes. <laughs> Rachel is a huge Jane Austen fan. Fight me. Anyone who thinks that they're a bigger Jane Austen fan. <laughs> okay. It's <laughs> a little aggressive. <laughs> uh, Northanger Abbey is a, I don't want to say parody. It is. <laughs> there was a different word I wanted, but it's, sure. It's a direct parody of the Castle of Otranto. Oh, see, I wouldn't know that because I haven't read that. <laughs> yeah. But um, you did tell me that it was like a parody of Gothic literature. Mm-hmm. And that Jane Austen was a really big fan of Gothic literature despite not really writing any? Um. Yeah, I don't, don't quote me on that. I think she was a fan of, I know she loved the novel. And you claim to be the biggest Jane Austen fan. <laughs> oh my god. The look she just gave me. <laughs> Tentatively, yes, I will say Jane Austen did enjoy gothic literature because she does spend like a solid few pages in Northanger Abbey to kind of rant about why books are great <laughs> and and why like gothic novels are great and why we shouldn't shame women for enjoying them. So mm-hmm. tentatively, I will say yes, she was a big fan of them. Yeah. Um there was a line early on in the book uh, when when Jane Austen was describing all of the characters and she was describing the heroine's aunt. And it says something like, I will now describe for you 
her appearance and general disposition so that you may decide what type of person you think she is and how she will come <laughs> into play. <laughs> I thought that was so fucking funny. Um, because it's like the way a character is portrayed is so important to how an audience views them. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot that's interesting about the way Lucille, Thomas's sister, is portrayed. I just think it's interesting that, like, they never try to shy away from the fact that Jessica Chastain's character, Lucille, is probably bad news Mm -hmm. from the minute she's on screen. I don't know. I just, I think, I think there's something interesting about that to me and how, like, how we think of her immediately, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah, I mean, that could go back to what we were discussing earlier about the, you know, the binary roles of women in gothic literature you Mm -hmm. have the predator and you have the virgin Mm -hmm. and you know i would argue that there's a third character in gothic literature Mm -hmm. there is the uh the shrew yeah the the the, like shrewish uh bitchy mother type or Mm -hmm. guardian type we don't see her apart from her ghost but (laughs) everything everything we hear about thomas and lucille's mother really kind of um points her as that type of character to go back to uh mm-hmm. the mysteries of udolpho the heroine emily when her dad dies and she's forced to go live with her aunt her aunt is like that she's very abusive and she is she only cares about money you know she's very shallow and unlike lucille emily kind of <laughs> In the end, she just remains an angel <laughs> and never lets it really get to her. And in the end, uh, the her aunt repents on her deathbed, which is caused – this is – I thought this was very interesting um, – is caused by her abusive husband, which is exactly what happens to Lucille and Thomas's mother. She is severely abused by her husband, and uh, Lucille has to tend to her. Mm-hmm. But yeah. – her mother doesn't, you know, her her sweet disposition doesn't convert her to, <laughs> yeah, to, to finally loving her like it does in the mysteries of Udolpho. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it could also have something to do with the fact that her mother found out that she had been molesting uh, her little brother. But you know, does whatever. she find out about that? Yeah, that's oh. that's that's why Lucille finally murders their mother is because oh, right. she had found out. You're right. Yeah. I would really love to discuss the fact that we both love Edith. How does she pull off being so lovable while still 100% adhering to the the trope of the the virgin character from gothic literature? I mean, even at the time, most of those heroines people were like, "God, she's annoying," you know, because they were just <laughs> they were just so virtuous. Yeah, I mean. Edith literally does not have sex after she marries Thomas, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, it's alarming that she gets away with being the stereotypical gothic heroine, but still manages to be so likable. You said that she she doesn't um, have sex with Thomas even after they're married? Mm -hmm. Well, she eventually does. Right. Um... She, she she says that he was very um, considerate of her during her grieving time because it was right after her dad died, which is, like, fine. Yeah. They do finally bone, though. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> and <laughs> it doesn't really seem to fit the time period. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I mean, good for her. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, good good for her. I mean, she is reading all those like naughty books. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from that, that's what, <laughs> that's what made me laugh to myself. Uh <laughs> apart from that, I don't know. Maybe I don't know. Is it is she just likable? Is it just <laughs> Well, what what distinguishes her from the eye-rolling like chastity and virtue of of gothic heroines do you think like is it because she has sass maybe because she does have some sass maybe also i don't get the feeling that she's like super concerned about her uh virtue and like it's not it's she's not pearl clutching Mm -hmm. you know what i mean she's not like 
Like Lucille, she's not holding on to her hymen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for dear and, life. Like, Lucille shows her that that book with the spine that has nudie pics, mm-hmm. <laughs> and she Lucille acts like Edith is scandalized. Mm-hmm. She doesn't seem scandalized. Yeah, like that's a good point. So I it's it forgotten about that scene. Yeah, it's not that it's not that I think that she is that she thinks of herself as like super clean and virginal. Mm-hmm. It's just that, like, that was the time period and that, you know, she got married and then, like, mm-hmm. she was eventually going to have sex with her husband and she did. <laughs> <laughs> she took control. They almost um, had sex in his workshop before that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not that, like, wanting to be virginal is bad. It's just, I think no, it's the, no. the holier-than-thou-ness and the pearl-clutching that's, like, the thing that is eye-rolling. Yeah. And, and also just, like... Like, in in the Mysteries of Udolpho, Emily, after being whisked away to this terrible castle, like, and locked in a tower, decides to to, to just take a moment to enjoy the scenery from her window, you know? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> like, that, like, even in these terrible moments of, like, terror and despair, to just, like, oh, but I'm still so Is amazing it un- that I'll... Is unrealistic naivete, maybe? Yeah, that's probably a good way to put it. Because I don't think of Edith as being naive. Apart from maybe not having experienced a lot of, like, the world and stuff. And she's very young. Yeah, that's true. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily consider her... I don't know. Because at the same time, I, I do think she's a little naive. Not in, like, a... Not to a fault. I think more in just a... She's still, like, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you know? Yeah. Like, she's so excited about going to Crimson Peak uh, because she thinks it's, like, one of her gothic novels. <laughs> you know? Like... <laughs> yeah, it's, but when she they gets don't there, state it explicitly, but she's very in, she's very endeared by the rom- the romance of this decaying estate, you know. Yeah, definitely. It's very sublime in that way where it's this hideous estate that is literally rotting and mm-hmm. sinking into the ground, but it's also enamoring. But once shit starts going south, she like she snaps out of it. You know, like Yeah, she, yeah. And she also never, like, takes a moment, <laughs> like, like when she's being chased by Lucille with a knife, she doesn't take a moment to admire the, the blood or the, the, the red clay seeping through the, the snow, you know? Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't, like, stop a moment to sketch a picture of it or something. <laughs> Ugh, boy, jeez. <laughs> um, here's something that I think contributes. We don't have the dynamic that is so prevalent in gothic books um between the heroine and the uh creepy rapist guy that's true (laughs) yeah i guess that's true i guess what i'm getting at is that edith doesn't really like her innocence doesn't really seem to be challenged like her virtue is never challenged she no one tries to manipulate her into doing something that is against her morals i don't think Hmm. necessarily you know like Mm -hmm. Of course, they manipulate her, but it's not like they're manipulating her into becoming a murderer right. or something. You know, she she stays true to who she is. Yeah, but it's but like not because she's relentlessly challenged. Yeah, <laughs> like shit goes down. Shit happens to her. You know, and she's certainly not naive and bright eyed and bushy tailed by the end of the movie. Right, but that's not because you know the devil disguised as a as a man came and tried to seduce her or something right now yeah 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 that makes sense and uh, with tropes as old as the gothic tropes are you know they're just going some of them are just going to appear in in modern culture and people aren't necessarily going to know the roots of them for example horror movies today are all derived from gothic novels you know it it wasn't Mm -hmm. like a thing yeah. Before the romantics decided that gothic novels were a thing, to really have like horror stories like that, you had religious morality stories. But before that, it, talking about stuff like that was like sinful, you Ghosts know? and stuff. Yeah. So, like, talk about Cabin in the Woods, you know, the dynamic of the whore and the virgin, mm-hmm. you know, that comes directly from gothic novels. So, when these tropes emerge in modern media, sometimes it's not with the intent of 
giving a shout out to, <laughs> you know, gothic books or whatever. This clearly is, you know? Yeah. I just, I find it so interesting that, that Guillermo del Toro, you know, so clearly drew from these books that just no one talks about anymore. No one reads the romance of the forest mm-hmm. in high school. The fact that I read it in college, I, I literally had to take a class called From Romance to Gothic to read, <laughs> to read Anne Radcliffe, even though she was so quintessential to forming what has become the Western notion of the novel. Mm-hmm. You know, novels really didn't exist before the 1700s, and at least, you know, not as we understand them today. You know, I, I don't know if that's something a lot of people know. I didn't know it. I didn't know that novels didn't exist <laughs> before, <laughs> like, 1757, basically. Yeah. It's kind of crazy to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Definitely. Novels. <laughs> so that was our conversation about the way gothic literature influenced Crimson Peak. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm just going to be a bit of a nerd here, but I find it so fascinating <laughs> that this uh, pretty uh, irrelevant genre not only influenced all literature that came after it because you know novels didn't exist really yeah (laughs) before that time period um but also influenced uh, media as it exists today you know Mm -hmm. you can still see a lot of the tropes that gothic literature kind of invented in mainstream movies aside from crimson peak yeah I don't know if other people would think that's fascinating, but I sure do. (laughs) I think it's super interesting. So much so that we did a whole episode about it. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for indulging me. (laughs) This stuff features in uh, my deepest, darkest fantasies, so... (laughs) Wait, what? (laughs) I'm just really into gothic literature and... (laughs) can't tell if you're joking yes of course i'm joking <laughs> okay. i mean i am really into gothic literature i think it's fascinating yeah yeah sure, but like sure. <laughs> so if you enjoyed this reach out to us on twitter once again that's at optiot o-p-t-i-o-t and on instagram at optiot pod and on our website one person's trash is our treasure.com we also have uh some blog posts on there uh we're trying to be better about that we haven't really been updating super regularly but if you can't get enough of us then you'll find you'll be (laughs) you'll be pleased to find there's more content written and created by us just for you on our website and um what should what should our question be this week rachel oh let us know online or on social media if you've uh, encountered any, like, mainstream media that was highly influenced by something incredibly niche or uh, obscure. Mm-hmm. I just want to eat this bread. Go ahead. Well, I don't want to eat into the microphone. I just want to eat this. That's all. I know. I mean, this is probably, this is dumb to talk about because it'll probably get cut out. Because nobody cares about our um, opinions. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone dies. That's the exact same joke you made at 14. Is it really? Yeah. (laughs) You don't remember that. Oof. (laughs) I think the only time my upstate New York accent, like, shows is when I struggle. Guillermo del Toro. Is is when I'm... Oh, God. <laughs> and everybody needs to stop pulling out the stabbing instruments that are in them. <laughs> Alan is a doctor. I always start, so you should start. I started during the 14 episode. I know, because I made, made you. <laughs> Outro time. <laughs> is that going to be every time now? Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> this is what happens when I try to be a comedian. <laughs> It just confuses people, and no one laughs. Usually I know when you're joking. (laughs) I know, I'm the worst. You heard it here first. (laughs) Jen's the worst. 
<laughs> Please take that out. No. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is this bit you're doing? <laughs> Fuck, what's it called? <laughs> I'll edit it together. <laughs> I don't know. Um, what, what was that? <laughs>